than ourselves. And that's kind of what I want to talk a little bit about. I want to just tell you tonight some of the great victories that they're experiencing in India and just kind of give you an update. A number of years ago, probably 12 years ago, they bought a parcel of ground, about six acres, for a really a nominal price. I mean, it's really been fascinating. I think they paid just over $10,000. I'm not going to try to give you the specific numbers, but it was 11600 I know exactly what it was. But anyways, they, they've been trying to harvest grain because they're feeding every single day, Sabine, 280 people. Two meals a day, three meals a day, three meals a day. Isn't that amazing? That's a lot of work, wouldn't you say? And they don't have the kitchen we have in our church. And they light a fire, put a pot on. It's, it's mind-boggling. It's pure work to feed that many people. Anyways, uh, so they decided to grow grain. They thought they could save money. At the end of the day, when they figured it all out, they were breaking even on the proposition. And so because the support, especially from the states, is really starting to diminish, they're trying to become more indigenous, self-supporting. And so they have amazing educational advancements. Like most of the people there either have master's or doctorate degrees. It's just, it's mind-boggling how well-educated these people are. Uh, The school is advancing right now. They not only have a new master's of theology program, but they're heading towards a PhD program. Yeah, in apologetics. It's going to be one of the first ones offered in the entire country. So that's really exciting. They said, Pastor, uh, could you be involved in our advisory board? I said, yeah, I'd be happy to do that. So I said, I don't know what that means. I don't know if I'm qualified. I don't know if I can add a lot. But I think they need six advisors. It's probably just somebody's name really helps. They said they'll ask, us, they'll ask me any questions if they need me. But <clears throat> anyways, that's exciting. They had this parcel of ground. They decided to sell it and to convert it into a training, a, a school for people in the, in the community. They know they could generate a lot of revenue. They'd have an English-speaking school from 8 o'clock to noon, and then from 1 o'clock to 5, they would offer Hindi. They're building a phenomenal school. has 33 classrooms. I mean, this is a big school, right? And they needed X number of dollars. And, in, you know, in north of over 300,000. And so they were praying and crying out to God, and, the, and this is amazing to me. Every piece of property they touch and start building, the land values go up. And so all of a sudden, somebody bought it, and they actually exceeded the amount of money that they needed to build the school. Oh, what a great thing, you know. And God's just, you know, obviously his hand is on that to have value of land escalating that rapidly in a dozen years. Just an amazing thing. The other thing that happened, and Dr. Thomas was here in April, shared how they had an earthquake. It actually cracked the foundation of their church. You know, it probably was an act of God because the church was way too small and was inadequate for their use, and so they had to rip the, uh, the church down. But fortunately, many, many years before, they had you know, built their first Bible college, and they had a property across the street from the church, and its value was way up there, and they were able to sell that, and they're able to build this church. And so I'm just going, God, you are so faithful. <clears throat> so those are tremendous victories that they are experiencing. They currently have 146 Bible college students in their program. They have 30 other additional extension students working on their Master of Theology degree, pastors that are taking modulars coming in and doing that. 
people are responding to the gospel. But I want to just say that they have many challenges there. And I want to just tell you that the economy in India is moving forward. It's one of the biggest economies in the world. And in the last 12 years since I've gone, I've been seeing dramatic changes in the nation. And you're seeing the influence of the West. And how many know that some of the things that we're exporting to India are not all good? They really are not. And some of the values that we have in our culture that are unhealthy are being embraced. And so this past uh, time, I know the church was struggling because there was a key family battling with marital problems, and it possibly could have their second divorce in 60 years. Now, you know, we're looking at that like, wow, you know, it's no big thing. That happens all the time here. But in a culture that's not used to that, that was literally earth-shattering for them. And so they're trying to address this issue in their midst. So that's number one. Number two, uh, I've already mentioned their support, especially in the U.S., has really tailed off. The economy in the states has really been hard hit. And, uh, and so that's affected them. And, but you know what? God has been providing. And God continues to provide. And we're rejoicing in that. And I want to just say that uh, regarding the orphanage work, our church is their number one support. I'll just say that right now. There's no other church supporting their orphans but us. Uh, we're, we're the folks. We're, we're on the vanguard of trying to advance this thing. And I, I know I could just... I w- I could just Wish that you could have been there to see the children's program and to see these kids and to see the joy in their life. You know, it's just, it's very touching and very moving. And when I got there this time, our team messed me up. I'll tell you that. So the kids in my class, because some of them I had last year because they have two years in the seminary, they said, Pastor, did you bring anything for us? And I said, oh, I'm sorry, you know, I didn't know I was supposed to do that. I felt bad afterwards. So I said, well, I'll do something for you. And so Patty and I made a decision to uh, provide a little treat. But you know, in Otarsi, you can't just do it for one. So we provided treats for 280 people, you know. But you know what amazed me? For less than a dollar a person, we could provide a pop, a banana, an ice cream, and a samosa. Samosa is like a, a pizza pop, you know, and they love it. It's like, you know, a big deal, a big treat, and so, for, you know, you should have seen it when I told them, hey, we're going to have, you know, a treat day, and we're going to have ice cream and pop and a samosa, and uh, they, you know, a banana, they just went nuts. They were so excited. Uh, you know, that was, doesn't that sound kind of little to us, you know? But for them, it's everything. And they just lit up, you know, and they were so appreciative and so overwhelmed by it, that little expression of love, you know, that you can do for them. You know, isn't it, isn't it kind of fun to do something for somebody who has nothing and all they do is reflect back gratitude and deep appreciation? You know, I, I think I got more out of the experience than they were getting out of it, you know? The joy of seeing the joy inside of their hearts. What a powerful thing. And then uh, they've now, you know, secured the permit for the medical clinic. Praise God, that was a huge fiasco. But the only problem is they don't have any money to bring the... The equipment in it is about 90,000 Canadian dollars. Now, I found out they have 27 clinics in Atarsi. It's a city of about 150,000 people. They have one hospital. <coughs> However, saying all of that, that sounds great, but uh, the conditions there are absolutely deplorable. I hate to say that, but it's the truth. Uh, sometimes if you go to the hospital, you just never leave. And I don't mean that in a nice way. It's just, 
you know, they, they don't have the tools. They don't have the equipment. They don't have the sanitation. They're using things over and over again. They're doing the best they can. And uh, while we were there, a young uh, Hindu family came to Dr. Thomas because they'd gone to the hospital and they have a 45-day-old baby who was uh, obviously suffering and they brought her to the, ho- the child to the hospital and the doctor said she's not gonna, or he, or he or she's not going to live. And they were so distraught. So it was a major thing for them to come to the Christians and say, would you pray? Because uh, what the church has been doing, this has been beautiful. They've had so much opposition there. But you know what Dr. Thomas does? He's got a lot of wisdom. Instead of, you know, instead of getting upset with people, the people who have treated him the worst in the community, he has loved the most. And he's been winning over neighbor after neighbor after neighbor. And God has been performing miracle after miracle. So now the people in the community come to the Christians because they know that there's kindness, there's help, there's concern, there's compassion. And you know, God has been answering prayer in an amazing way. So this family came, they prayed for them. And then Dr. Thomas contacted one of the physicians, not a believer, and said, listen, we need to do something. What can be done? Because this guy's a little bit higher up and well, more well-noted doctor. And so he talked, you know, this family has nothing, total poverty. You know, most of the clinics charge 50 rupees, which is about 90 cents Canadian for them to go to the clinic. And Dr. Thomas wants to open his clinic and charge 10 rupees, which is even, you know, <laughs> one-fifth, Right. And he's already talked to a lot of the doctors, both Christian and non-Christian. They said, hey, we're prepared to come and serve in your clinic. But he wants to have the state-of-the-art equipment, the right kind of sanitation, you know, to have an understanding of what really needs to transpire there. Anyways, he got this doctor on board. He discussed the case with them. They went to see him. The doctor said, no, the child may not have to die, but they do need intense medical attention. And, uh, and this is sad to say, but he said, you can't leave this child in a tarsi, it will die. And so they made arrangements to an ambulance to drive the child two and a half hours away because that's where the nearest hospital is that can actually really attend to the needs in the community. So if you get sick there, you're in trouble there. So the first day I got there, I was sick. You know? <laughs> and so I, I knew better. I, I just go, I gotta survive a tarsi, right, and get back. I'm just, I'm just kidding. No, they're, they're so generous and so kind. Um, you know, the other, the other needs in the community, you know, we're so used to the order of Canada. We're so used to structure, safety, laws, housing regulations. In India, none of those things exist. The majority of people live in absolute poverty and squalor. There's nothing on the floor. You know, when we were there, like I said, the temperatures were running between 31 and 35. Every afternoon we had one hour monsoon rains. I'd never seen anything like it. And I mean, most of the people are got water on the floor. I mean, they're all sick. You can appreciate how desperate those conditions are. I mean, some of them have houses and some of them, at least there's cement on the floor, but a lot of them, there's just dirt and... Um, they just don't have adequate housing. And then you have, you know, traveling there is an amazing experience. You literally pray. That's the best way to describe it. Because there is no safety there. I mean, the roads, you and I wouldn't even be allowed to drive on these roads in Canada. There's potholes everywhere. We're talking highways. I mean, it's scary. You gotta, you know, slam on the brakes, avoid a cow, avoid the pig that's in the middle of the road. I mean, there's everything going on. And people are driving, 
like there's no tomorrow. The only thing you need in India to drive is brakes and a horn. And they're going all the time because they're letting people know we're coming and we're going to pass you, right? Rob, you were there. You saw it. I mean, sometimes, you know, what was made for two lanes, you got five people going, you know, five vehicles side by side, you know, right on the edge. Now, some of you understand this. You've probably traveled. You've seen some of this stuff. But, you know, on our trip home, while we were headed to the airport, as close as Roger is to me, I watched a young man lose his life. Just that fast. You know, they were traveling as on a motorcycle. Most of them, you know, they're not on the motorcycle by themselves. They have anywhere from two to three passengers on a little scooter, a little bike. It's mind-boggling. And so he had two young women. They had saris on. He's probably in his late 20s. He's following this bus. Later on, I found out there were military personnel on the bus. There was a lot of activity. We're on the highway. There's trucks coming. And some of these trucks are huge. And uh, you talk about safety. We got behind this one, and they had, it was, must have been grain inside. It looked like they were in two big sacks, and they're on these huge, massive trucks, and the sacks are hanging over both sides of the trucks. You go, hey, listen, this would never be tolerated. This, this truck would never pass anything in Canada. It's just mind-boggling. And then they have a breakdown in the middle of the road. They put a few rocks there, and everybody drives around it, you know? And the guy crawls under the vehicle, starts working at it right in the middle of the highway. We're not talking pulling over, folks. We're talking the middle, right? And so we're driving along, and he's riding a scooter, and I'm watching this. I'm right behind the driver. Of course, everything's on the other side, right? You guys understand that this is the, kind of the English uh, look. <coughs> and uh, we've, the, this guy that I've ridden with, Patel, I've been riding with him for the last 12 years. I call him Air, uh, Mario Andretti. I mean, this guy's an amazing driver, you know? So he's driving along, and I notice... The bus slows down, the motorcycle slows down, the bus goes, the bike is going, and the bus touched his brakes. The kid that was driving the bike hit his head against the bus, went down fast, hit his head on the pavement, no helmet. He was immediately killed. That was instantaneous. You could see it. He was dead. And the bike was down, and Patel, who was driving, I mean, when you're this close to it happening, he had to stop like right now where he would have ran over the two girls that had gone down with the bike. He stopped within about an a foot or two of them. People are streaming out everywhere. People are screaming. I mean, you know, they ran over to the bike. They're trying to wrestle the bike off these people. The girls finally get up. The kid's laying there. The bike is on him. They pick up the bike. You know, a guy jumps on him. He's trying to give him some sort of resuscitation. I can tell. This kid is not coming back. He's gone. You know, this was instantaneous. And so, you know, four people quickly grab one arm each, you know, and one leg each, and they pick this guy up, and they move him to the side of the road, and the whole thing goes on. You know, it's just, it was so, uh, oh, it was surreal. It happened just that fast, and it immediately reminded me, because when I went to India this time, I really felt in my spirit as I'm reading the scriptures, God says, I'm going to show you things, and then I want you to tell people. I'm going to show you. I said, what are you going to show me, God? So I kept praying every day. What are you trying to tell me, God? What are you trying to show me? And, you know, as I looked at that young life, probably in his late 20s, I realized something, the brevity of life, the fragility of life. You know what? In a split second, all of his dreams came to an end. All of what he was going through, whatever the pressures of life, the challenges of life, came to an end just that fast. It was over with. You know, sometimes we have this attitude that we're going to just keep on going. 
Because in this culture, the one we're living in, we're in a major state of denial. We are denying the ultimate reality called death. You know what I'm noticing now as a pastor? Many people today are not even having a funeral. You're talking about the ultimate denial of reality. This is happening. I'm serious. People do not want to address this reality, and yet we are all confronted with it. And we, you and I have no guarantees. A stroke, heart attack, it can happen. A car accident, you know, just some sort of, I just was reading on the ticker tape on the way home, five people in India were killed because their firecracker factory exploded and five people were killed. That morning when they went to work, they had no idea that was their last moment. They had no concept this was the last day of their life. And you and I have no concept of that. And you know, I was teaching from the book of Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes is a very philosophical and profound book. It's actually a very challenging book to study. And it starts out like this. Meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And it goes on to talk about what life is all about. It says, everything is meaningless under the sun. In other words, the writer is going to give us a perspective of life apart from God. And what he basically says is, if you are living life and God is not in the equation, you're going to find out that your life is going to be quite empty in a hurry. As a matter of fact, there's been a lot of discussion as to who the author is in the book of Ecclesiastes. Most biblical scholars today do not believe it's Solomon, even though the book is written as if Solomon is writing the story. Because it uses the fact of Solomon because his name, because of a number of things. One, his amazing wealth. Number two, he was noted for his amazing wisdom. Number three, he had the capacity and the ability to experience life to its fullest. You know, some of us in this room, we may not have that capacity or ability to have everything we ever wanted. But could you imagine being a monarch, a total a potentate, a dictator, in essence, had everything under his command. This man was married, believe it or not, to what? 700 women and had 300 concubines. I mean, he didn't deny himself anything, did he? And yet, the Bible says that Solomon, at the end, became a total shipwreck. It says his wives led him astray. They moved him away from a very vibrant faith in Almighty God. And Solomon literally became an apostate. With all of his wisdom, as a matter of fact, what the book teaches is that wisdom alone is not enough. As a matter of fact, it goes on to say that you and I can pursue all kinds of things in life. You can have all the money in the world. You can have all the, the wisdom in the world. You can pursue you know, pleasure. You can go after all of these things. But at the end of the day, what you're going to find out is none of those things ultimately satisfy. Because the more you have, the more the human soul craves. There's no end to you know, finding any sort of satisfaction. And the people in our culture today that have the most are the people are the most miserable because they've denied themselves nothing and they're totally, their appetites are insatiable. And the more you feed the flesh, the more you feed your human nature, the more you feed what you think is gonna satisfy you, the less satisfied you are. And ultimately, the reason why the writer says everything is meaningless is because it doesn't matter how much wisdom, how much money, how much you have in life, it's all gonna be stripped by a thing called death. 
I want you to take for a moment this picture. I want you to think about infinity for a moment. I want you to think about what it would be like if your life never ended. I want you to think about living through. We've only had, some people believe, only 6,000 years of human history. Could you imagine living on and on and on? Yet there's something inside of us. There's something inside of us that's designed within us to know that there is something beyond this life, and it does go in infinity. It says eternity has been set in our hearts. The book of Ecclesiastes states that. Now I want you to think about time for a minute. I want you to think about the relationship of 70 or 80 years in light of infinity. And to suggest to you and I that what we do in these 70 or 80 years is actually going to define what's going to happen for all of eternity in our lives. Boy, I'll tell you, this is so brief and so fleeting and so fragile and so brief that if you and I make poor decisions here, it could totally affect how our entire future is going to be lived out. And the Bible teaches that concept. And so the conclusion of the book goes something like this. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 1, he says, Remember your creator in the days of your youth before the days of trouble came and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. What's he talking about? He's basically saying, listen, while you have vigor and youth and enthusiasm, serve God. Because there's going to come a time in your life where you're going to get old and then all of a sudden your body is going to start shutting down on you. And that's what chapter 12 talks about. It eventually says you're not even going to enjoy life. You're going to be like the 90-year-old person. And I've heard it so many times. It says, I can you know, I just, I can't wait to leave this planet. I have no, there's nothing in this world that I, I have interest in. All of my friends are gone my body is a complete wreck. When is God going to take me home? I've heard that more than once. You see, Ecclesiastes is dealing with reality. And in North America, we're living in denial. And I will bring that out a little further as we go along. The book concludes with these last two verses. Now, all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. In other words, where do you find significance, purpose, and meaning in life? He says, I'll tell you where. He says, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. What is he saying? He said, rather you believe it or not, God exists. And I don't care how smart you are. I don't care if you have a PhD in science and you think you can come up with some sort of a strategy that negates the existence of God. Folks, if you're a blind person and you tell me you can't see something, I just say, hey, it doesn't mean that doesn't exist. It just means you have a condition called blindness and you can't see it. Folks, God exists. You start really thinking about how we got here. You start thinking about the miracle of life. You start studying things like chromosomes and single cell things. And it's going to blow your mind how absolutely the amazing design that God has put into the human body. It's mind boggling. Don't just tell me this just randomly happened. We're living in denial, folks. There is a God in heaven. And we will stand before our maker one day and we will give an account for this life. Wow. Thank you, Jesus. 
And we need to understand that. And we need to allow that to grip our soul to say, what I am doing here and now is going to make an amazing difference about what's going to happen in my future. But I don't want to stop at the Old Testament. I want to turn to my favorite New Testament book, the book of Philippians. I love this book. It's rich. It's practical. It's vibrant. It's alive. <coughs> it's got some beautiful pictures. It tells us how we are to live our lives. Because, you know, most of our life is lived, <coughs> excuse me, in community. It's lived in relationship. And the thing that really brings meaning is not living in isolation. It's living with other people. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter how much you have. At the end of the day, it's the kind of connectedness and relationships and the quality of relationships you and I experience. That's what really matters. And so in Philippians chapter two, I love chapter two, I love chapter four. I have to be honest, I'm a little biased. I really like the Bible. There's so much good stuff in it. But let's just pick up the story here in verse five. It says, in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Now, I wanna just tell you that the key to life is how to get along with people. That's it. And most of us struggle with it. We have a hard time. You know, a lot of us as Christians, we're funny. We can talk about, oh, I get along with God, great. I have an awesome relationship with God. I'm so glad you do. You know, because God is someone that's spirit, and you ever notice that he never argues with you? You know what I mean? We argue with God. We argue with ourselves. But you know, God just seems to let us make our choices and do our thing. And so we never have a problem with God. It just seems like he's cooperating. He's just allowing these things to happen. And so I always hear people say, I have a wonderful relationship with God. I said, great. How's your relationship with other people? Well, that's the problem, pastor. I go, yeah, but that's reflecting your real relationship with God. I hate to tell you this, but it's the truth. And so how you are relating to people, in my mind, is actually helping us understand our true relationship with God. So how are you doing? Got any problems there? Any conflicts? Any issues? Any difficulties? Ever have any struggles with people? Ever have any misunderstandings? Okay, I'm talking to the right group. Let's take a look at this. It says, in your relationships with one another. Anybody have one of those? A relationship with someone else? Okay, this is gonna all work for us tonight. This is gonna be applicable to every single one of us. We will not get off the hook tonight. So the, the things I want you to understand is what does it take? You know, we can talk about, you know, we need to serve God. Tonight I'm gonna talk about how to serve God because that's the real issue, isn't it? How to serve God. You know, we could say, well, I'm serving God. I go, but how are you doing? Well, I'm doing great, Pastor. Well, then I go, well, how are you doing in your relationship? Not so good. You're not doing as good as you think in your relationship with God. Because John says, if I hate my brothers, you know, how can I say I love God and hate my brother? Yeah. Come on now. It's the acid test. 
God says, I'll tell you what you're really doing. You're in denial. We have a lot of people not dealing with reality. We have a lot of Christians not dealing with reality. We don't understand. This is what God is looking at. How are we treating each other? So the first thing I'm going to suggest in truly serving God is that we have the right attitude. We have the right mindset. We're in the right headspace. So let's check where our headspace is at tonight, okay? What is going on within the mind of an individual? Well, he says here, there's been conflict with people in the church here. People aren't getting along. He publicly names them in chapter four. He said, I want you guys to be of one mind. How many of you know if you got, you have to say that, that means people have more than one mind. And if you have two minds, and if you're in marriage, that's called conflict. Yeah. Just pointing this out. He goes, in your relationship with one another, have the same mind as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. What this says to me is Jesus did not have to have his way. That's our biggest problem. We have to have our way. That's where all the conflicts are. It's amazing. If you become a servant, you go, how do you know when you're a real servant of God? How you react when people treat you like one? How do you react when people treat you like you're not that important? Oh, I get indignant. I'm upset about that, Pastor. Well, if you're a servant, you don't. Think about it. You are, understand your place. It doesn't matter what people think about me. It's not about me. That is our biggest problem. We are dealing with ourselves. There's our challenge. Listen to what he says. He said he made himself nothing. He made a decision. He had every right in the world to say, I'm God, I'm gonna do my thing, and I can do what I, I have the power to do it, but he steps back and he doesn't exert his rights or his powers. He lays them aside. He says, I will be a servant. Now, if you and I are really serving God, we have to recalibrate our thinking. How many here, you can say, you know, I'm a little disappointed with the way life has turned out, or I don't, I'm not real happy about the way things are going. Who brought you to this place? Well, I made some stupid decisions. Okay, well, then don't blame God. Or, you know, this is happening in my life and I don't like what, how it's shaping up. I'm going, yeah, but if you're a servant, who cares? It's about trusting God. It's not about my way. It's not about my will. It's about God's way and God's will. You know, it says about Jesus, I came into this world. I you, you prepared, what, a body for me. I delight to do your will. Now, did Jesus have a struggle once in a while with the will of God, the Father? I can point out in the Garden of Gethsemane he did. You know, when he said, I'm gonna take you to the cross, Jesus goes, there's gotta be a better way to do this. This is quite painful. <laughs> this is not gonna be fun. You see, you know, if it's not fun, then we're going, well, it can't be God's will. You know, you ever thought about it? God might ask you to do something that's not fun. He might ask you to do something that's difficult. He might ask you to do something that's not to your advantage. He might ask you to do something that might advantage someone else. By the way, did, was that what Jesus did? Isn't that what we're called to do? It's just a thought, you know? It says, rather he made himself 
nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. Oh, I gotta stop there. Obedience. Mm, interesting word. Uh-huh. We had a little dog, little white Bichon. Her name was Popcorn. I'd call this dog nothing. I'd go to the refrigerator, open the door, take out a carrot, and take a peeler. Now, my voice is louder than the peeler. I'd start peeling the carrot. The dog was right there. That's called selective hearing. Basically, the dog says, I come on my terms. Most of us, we go, God, I come on my terms. You pull out a carrot, I'm there. But if you're calling me to do something, I don't know if I should show up or not because I don't know what you're going to ask me to do. I don't know if I'm going to like it. (laughs) Obedience. It says, he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. You know, this whole idea about dying to self. Oh, Jesus said, you know, if any man comes after me, he must what? Take up his cross. Oh, we can quote it. You ever try it? You know what he's talking about? He's talking about dying. He says, you must take up your cross daily. Oh, what is he asking me to do? He says, I want you to die to yourself. Now, listen to me. Remember, a little, I started out saying, where do you find meaning? I'm going to give you the answer. It's not in us. It's not in what we think is going to bring us meaning. We have the wrong goals. We have the wrong purposes. We think it's about making our life safe and convenient and enjoyable. Come on, isn't that where we're at? Isn't that where our culture's at? And aren't we being told every single day we work hard, we deserve this, you know, on and on it goes, right? We're not challenged to suffer. Oh, don't even talk about that. We're gonna go get a pedicure and a manicure. That's what it's about, right? Come on, right? Massage, little massage, you know? Pamper yourself, you know, We're being told, you deserve a break today. You deserve it. It's your right. Come on over here. Fulfill every desire, you know. Isn't that how this culture runs? I'm just pointing it out. And you know, Jesus says, take up your cross. Die every day. To what? To myself to my self-centeredness, to my selfishness, to have to having my way. You know what God's asking us to do? Go take out the garbage. Oh, not just our garbage, just as a husband. Go take out the garbage. You know, the kid has a dirty bum and we sit there and go, who's gonna change the diaper? Come on. I'm getting down here where we're living, folks. Just get up and go change the diaper. And don't walk around keeping score. That was, that was your turn now. I just changed the last one. Are we hearing what I'm saying? I'm keeping track of what I'm doing. I'm the hero. I changed four diapers in a row. Good for you. 
It shouldn't even be thought like that. We shouldn't even think in this way. You know, I took the garbage out the last week. It's your turn. You know, what, what's with this stuff? You know, why don't we just have a heart that says, you know, it's my delight to serve. It's my joy and privilege to serve you. Isn't that the way it should be? We shouldn't even be thinking. We should just be doing it. We should be automatic. We, we know we're not here for ourselves. That's what I'm trying to tell us tonight. We are not here for ourselves. We are living for a higher purpose. We have a destination in mind. We have an amazing goal. And here's what you need to know. It says, for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. There was a joy in the cross because he knew what it was producing. And can I tell you, the real joy in life isn't getting, it's giving. That's the real joy. The real joy in life is serving and giving ourselves away. Actually, the real joy is forgetting about ourselves. That's our biggest problem. We're so consumed with ourselves. And we think we're highly spiritual. The highly spiritual people don't even think about it. Because they forgot a long time ago and they're just enjoying the journey because they're enjoying the God who's taking them on the journey. That's where we need to go, folks. That's what brings real peace and real joy in our lives. It's not about getting what we think we want. The more you get what you think you want, the more dissatisfied you become. Yeah. I'm helping you out. You don't have to have a lot of money. You don't have to have all the things the world's telling you you need, all the toys and trinkets. You become a servant of those things. Do you realize that? The more you have, the more you become a slave to what you have. Yes. I'm just pointing it out. That's reality. We may not like it, but it's the truth. It says, therefore God exalted him to the highest place. You know the way up in the Christian life? Let's take the elevator down. Jesus said, you want to be great in my kingdom? Be the servant of everyone. Be the servant of the servants. Isn't that amazing? Show people value. Show them dignity. It's no, there's nobody too low on the team. You know, I shared this morning... How many remember when you were a little kid? I remember this. And they're picking teams. And you're the littlest kid. And nobody wants you on their team. Because they know you're a liability. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And so they're picking people. And you're standing there. And finally one of the kids say, you can have him. <laughs> it's like they're saying, you take that liability, would you? And I want you to know something. God picked you and I while we were liabilities. Isn't that awesome? We need to know something. We're in God's team. What an amazing thing that is. Well, let me move on. The second element is the heart of a servant. The first is how we think, our mind, our attitude. The second is what motivates us, what inspires us. What gets people going? Why are we doing what we're doing? What motivates us? Do you think motivation's powerful? Yes. And why we do what we do? You think that's very powerful? You can do the right thing for the wrong reasons. Right. It can be very selfish. 
I'm going to tell you how powerful motivation is. It was, guy was at a party, decided, you know, I'm going to go home early. So I take a shortcut. And the shortcut happened to be through a cemetery. So he took off, and, you know, it was night. It was dark. And he didn't know that they had earlier dug a grave. And so he's walking along, and he falls into the grave, and it's six feet, and he's a little bit short, and he can't get out of there. And he's jumping up and down. He's trying to climb. I mean, the, you know, the bankment's steep. It's a little muddy, and he can't get a grip. Starts hollering, help, hey, anybody out there? No response. After, you know, futility, he realizes this isn't going to happen. So he sits in the corner and says, well, they're going to have to come tomorrow to figure out, they can't leave a hole like this here. This is not safe. Somebody's going to have to show up and figure out what's going on here. At least they're going to bring the casket or something. They'll get me out then. So he sits in the corner. Before you know it, he falls asleep. A little later on, somebody else from the party decides to go home. You guessed it. He decided to take a shortcut through the cemetery. <laughs> same thing happened. Fell into the hole. This guy is doing the same thing. Human nature, get me out of here. First guy wakes up because he hears all the racket. He starts chuckling to himself. He goes, what an idiot. He's not getting out of here, right? So he walks over to the guy and he goes, hey, you're not getting out of here. And touches him and immediately the guy got out of there. <laughs> Fear is a powerful motivator, right? But God isn't interested in us serving him out of that kind of fear. Because the fear of the Lord is actually a reverential fear. It's an awe of God. God wants us to get to the point where we're serving him because we've experienced his dynamic love. And that love has so changed us that it motivates us to love other people. We're, we become a channel of God's love. What a powerful thing. Now listen. He goes on to say, Therefore, my dear friends, <coughs> excuse me, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in, a core in order to fulfill his good purpose. Whoa, are we living to fulfill God's purpose? Are we living to bring glory and honor to our Father in heaven? That's what, it's, that's what it has to be about. And if it's not there, we need to make a shift. We need to say, God, forgive me. I got the wrong motivation in life. I messed up. I got the wrong goal in mind. And I'm gonna tell you, if you don't put it on this this center this you know put your g you know what is it gps if you don't put it on dead center the glory of god you're going to be shooting all over the place <coughs> you're not going to get to the destination folks then it goes on to say do everything without grumbling or arguing oh anybody complain <laughs> any complainers here any whiners winter's coming, winter's coming. okay how about arguing? Anybody argue? Argumentative? You know what all this stuff says? Complaining and arguing. What are we complaining and arguing about? I'm not getting my way. Come on now. Isn't that what it's all about? Hey, it's not about your way. It's about his way. It's not about your will. It's about his will. Can I just tell you, his way and will is far superior than ours. Far superior. But we're so gullible, you know, 
We buy into what the culture tells us. Don't we? It says here, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. How many think our culture is a bit warped? It's kind of bent a little bit. It's got some weird stuff going on. You guys see it? Anybody else notice it's just a little bit distorted? Unhealthy? Can we use a lot of words? It's getting more perverse. It's getting a little snaky. We can go on and talk about it, right? Well, Peter says that's the way it's always been. Always been this problem. You always had people complaining and arguing, and you know, there's always been corruption and graft and injustice, and on and on it goes. It's always been this way. And then he says, then he says, if you do things without grumbling and complaining and arguing, people go, something's different about you. Yeah. Right off the bat, something's different about you. Amen. Right? Yep. If you are a person that doesn't have to have the way, you're the kind of person that says, hey, whatever. You want to do it that way? We'll try. I mean, it's not illegal or immoral. No, no, you know what I'm talking about. Hey, fine, let's do it. And you're that kind of person that goes, hey, I get along with you. You know, some people are hard to get along with. Have you found that out? Because they have to have their way. They got to have their way. They're hard to get along with. But there's some people, they're so easy to get along with because you know what? They just flow. It doesn't, it's not about them. They don't have to get their way. You know why? Because they have an absolute confidence that God's will is going to be done. And they know, and they're convinced in their heart that all things are going to work together for good to those who love God. They're totally convinced God's purposes are going to be worked out, and they have absolute confidence and trust in God. So it's easy to be around those people. They're a delight. They just flow. When you're around them, something happens. Notice what it says, then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. Do you realize that stars in the, in the history of mankind were used for what? Navigation. Thank you, right answer, navigation. People got their bearing. They were on a journey. You're on a ship. You don't know where you are in the big wide ocean. You know, there's no you know, stop signs. There's no marker signs in the ocean saying, hey, you're at this location. But when they looked at the stars, they could gauge by where the different stars were. They could navigate across oceans. They could navigate across deserts. They could actually find a point of reference so they could make the journey. Folks, you and I are navigating the journey of life, and we need the stars to show us the way. But in our culture, who are the stars? Movie stars, sports stars. Hey, folks, are we taking our cues from those stars? No. They're lost. You start navigating your life based on their life, and I'm going to tell you, you're going to be in big, bad trouble. Come on now. But hey, the person who loves God and who is walking in God's purposes becomes a shining star, and you can navigate your life off of them. I want to close with this. I know a person like that. I know a person who's selfless. And every time I go to India, I get reconnected with her. And that's Dr. Thomas's wife, Elizabeth. She's an amazing lady. It's too bad you guys don't know her the way Patty and I know her. Rob, Arlene, you got a taste of it last year. She's selfless. She says, it's my privilege to serve you. She just serves. But let me tell you her story. When she was 15 years old, she left home. She had a desire to immigrate to the United States. She had a friend. <coughs> and together, 
They went on this journey. They didn't have the resources financially. They didn't have anything correct to do it. But she had an amazing faith in God. And she felt in her heart God was directing her to the U.S. And that miracle after miracle, as she tells the story, God opened the way. And she ends up in the United States. She's trained as an RN. She's probably 18 or 19 years old by this time. And immediately gets a job, and they put her as a charge nurse. What an honor and favor. She's given that responsibility because she's the kind of person that's conscientious and it doesn't, it's not about her. It's always about what's best for the patient. And boy, she's ticked some people off because they were lazy. And she said, listen, I don't care what you're doing. I don't care what ethnic background you are. This patient needs our care and we're gonna do it right. Good nurse. Lord, give me those kind of nurses, right? <laughs> They're for the patient not just sitting on their butt. Hey, some of them do that. Would to God, they all did the right thing. But you know, every job has people who are lazy. Come on now. Then what does she do? She lives in the United States for 42 years of her adult life. Dr. Thomas, you know, <coughs> it's great. <coughs> he hears the call of God. He's a very successful businessman in Chicago. <coughs> <coughs> making lots of money, sells everything, moves his family to a little community in central India. And I mean, this is the sticks. Backwoods, you know, running water, you run for it kind of thing. You know, it's just really way out there. There's no social life, I can guarantee you. I've been there even to this last week, well, last week I was there. There is no social life there. There's no, nothing going on there. It's the back sticks. Let me tell you. She gets there. She's totally Americanized. And her children, because they're American-born, and India at that moment had a tension with the United States, their children were being beat up, and there was a lot of tension. And so both her and her husband made a decision for the safety of their family. She moved back to the States. Dr. Thomas started traveling back and forth you got to do this trip a few times to really value what they're doing two or three times a year doing this trip. It's mind-boggling to me. She gets a job in the evening so she can literally care for her family, and she works the next 16 years on the night shift, raising and paying, raising her own kids, mostly by herself, not only paying for their household upkeep in Chicago, but very few people are supporting what Dr. Thomas is doing at the beginning, and she's paying for that. Never a complaint, never a murmur, never upset. It's my pleasure to serve. That's her statement. She lives until she's at retirement age. Now she can enjoy life. She loves living in Chicago. She's an American girl, really, by now, right? But no, her husband is serving in India. So now they decide to spend more and more time because their youngest daughter just got her PhD in pharmaceuticals and she's a pharmacist now. And they feel the freedom to spend more time in India. And now she lives in a small community in total isolation, serving her husband and the people in this community. Not a word of complaint. It's my privilege to serve. When you meet a person like that, you go, here's a star you can navigate your life on. Because all she has done, she, I could say a lot more, all she has done is lay down her life and serve other people. 
And you know what? If you saw her, you'd be surprised. She's full of joy. She's got absolute peace. She reads her Bible continuously. And, oh, I forgot to tell you, she had to learn the language of that community because she's from South India. Her mother tongue is not Hindi. So, you know, Hindi is probably her fourth or fifth language. So she gets the whole missionary experience of having to learn a language and try to learn a new culture. Okay? So she opens up. I mean, we're there with them. And it's neat that we have a kind of a friendship where they can feel free, and especially this trip because it's just Patty and myself, to unload and talk about the challenges and pressures that they're faced with. And I walk away and I go, you know, I had a lot of pressure going in. I never said anything. I was going, I don't know how I can handle all this. But when I listen to what they're handling, I go, don't be a wimp. Step up to the plate and hit the ball. You know what I'm saying? Are you getting it? It's not about us. Is this making sense to you? How come we're having a problem getting along with people? I'll tell you. We're the problem. We're the problem. Stop looking elsewhere and just say, you know what? If I'm truly crucified with Christ, there is no issue here. If I'm truly a servant and it's not about me, there is no issue here. If I don't have to have my way, there is no issue here. It's just that simple. Let's stand. I believe God's been speaking to hearts tonight. I believe some of us, we need to recalibrate the center of our being and say, you know what, Lord? (coughs) I'm bombarded with the message of my culture that says it's all about me. And I'm a voice crying in the wilderness tonight saying, stop, you're listening to the wrong voice. It is not about you and me. It's about him. And I want to help you tonight to really find joy. How many say, I'd really like to experience joy? I'd really like, to, I, I'm just telling you, then you need to give yourself away. Amen? You, thank you, David. I appreciate that. You need to just give yourself away. It's just a cup of water. But it's exactly what I need. You and I need to say, you know what? I need to say to the Father, Lord, forgive me. I've become maybe discouraged in my journey with you. Maybe I have felt overwhelmed. Maybe I'm upset because things aren't going the way I'd like it to. Maybe I'm having relational tensions and difficulty, and I recognize tonight, yeah, maybe the other person might be difficult to live with, but you know what? If I'm crucified with Christ and I don't have to have my way, who cares? I'll be, I'll serve, Lord, because I'm gonna do it unto you. And the moment you make that decision, joy starts coming into your life. Joy will come into your life. I'm giving you guys the keys of the kingdom of God tonight. The keys that will set you free from being so unhappy, so frustrated with life, a sense of drifting, a sense of meaninglessness, a sense of emptiness, a sense of loneliness. Folks, our greatest need is for God himself. And if we allow his presence to come into our soul, we can be in a solitary place with ourselves and God and know peace and joy and contentment and fulfillment and absolute purpose and meaning. Isn't that amazing? 
I'm telling you the way. I'm pointing it out to you. Take up your cross every single day and not be about you. Look around you. Get outside your box. Look around you and see the people and start taking an interest. You know, I didn't even finish the sermon. I could have talked tonight about Timothy who was not just concerned about his own interest but the interest of others. He said there's nobody else like him who's concerned about the welfare of others. The moment you get outside of yourself and start looking at other people and how you can serve them, that's the moment you become free. That's the moment you start entering into a new joy. It's amazing. You know, why do I go to India? It's not the trip. There's a lot of things there I enjoy. There's a lot of things there I do not enjoy. If I had my way, I wouldn't go. But every time I come out to the India trip, I go, okay, I believe God wants me there. And when I see the faces of those people, and this time particularly, the class that I had, they were so beautiful, these guys. So appreciative. They knew it cost to come there. And they know that, you know what, very few people are gonna come and pour into their lives and say, I care for you. And the moment you start saying that to people, something happens to them. You know, it's not my great sermons. It's not my great teaching. You know what they like? I come. It's just being there. It's presence. You know, a lot of times we think, well, I've got to come up with something fancy. No, you don't. Sometimes saying nothing is powerful. It's just being there. It's just being there for people. Yeah, but I don't know what to do. So what? doesn't matter. You're there. And when you're there, you're giving the most powerful message in the world. You care. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that what we really want? We want to be loved. We want to know someone cares. Isn't that true? I want you to be those someone that will go and care and find real meaning and purpose. With every head bowed tonight, how many here say, you know what, Pastor? I need to recalibrate. I've allowed pressures and difficulties and the things of life to skew my focus. I've, I've been upset uptight lately. Hasn't been working out the way I want it to. But tonight I've heard that God is saying, it's not about what you want. It's about my will and purpose for you. I want you to surrender anew and afresh to me. I want you to allow me to be at the center. I want you to die to yourself so you can be free to truly live. And tonight you need a fresh touch from God. You need to allow that to happen inside of you. Just raise your hand. Just raise your hand to God. Say, Lord, I make a fresh surrender. I make a fresh surrender to you tonight. God's going to use you, my friends. Get your eyes off your problems. Get your eyes off yourself. Look around and see the people that are hurting around you and walk up to them. Your problem may be greater than their problem, but all of a sudden, you're outside your box and you're ministering to people. And the moment you start to do that, joy will start hitting your heart. Something will happen inside of you. Lord, I just pray tonight as we make this sweet surrender, as we delight to do your will, as we discover what real life is all about, the real purpose of living is to bring glory and honor to your name. Lord, help us to have the mind and the heart and the motivation of a servant and help us serve others. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you leave tonight.